All right, welcome everybody to this episode of the Artist of Motion podcast. My guest today is Coach B, aka Veron Ranasing, out of Silver Spring, Maryland, USA. Primarily focused training and teaching Tang Sudo and Kempo, he oversees a large school with multiple disciplines taught every week. He's a distance runner in his spare time and holds a degree in business. He's on the line with us. Welcome to the show, V. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. And uh, I got to tell you, it's a real honor and, uh, you know, a treat to be on here, especially uh, just you, you run a great podcast, great show, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, since I gave everybody just kind of a nutshell overview of your background here, how about expanding on that for us? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just start uh, in the beginning, if that's okay. You know, I uh, I started, you know, my martial arts journey at the age of five. Um, it was a, you know, it seems like a long time ago, and uh, but in some ways not long ago. And, um, you know, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I grew up in the Silver Spring, Maryland area. I still live here. Um, uh, you know, I remember my dad, he took me to a... Um, you know, like a martial arts school at the time. And, you know, this is pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-all of that, you know, so this was kind of old school, at least in the way I think of it. And I remember, Steve, you know, he went out to, uh, we were in downtown Silver Spring. We went to the second floor of some building. Couldn't tell you the guy's name, couldn't tell you the name of the school. I just remembered we went there. I sat in on a class. The teacher was, you know, at that time, the words that I remember my parents using were, you know, he was strict. He was yelling at the kids and all this. You know, I kind of viewed it as, you know, looking back on it, he was just a very traditional teacher. I think he was teaching Taekwondo, maybe Tung Sudo. I'm not sure. Um, you know, but I just remembered I was scared. You know, I just wanted to leave that class. And I thought that would be the end of my martial arts journey. You know, I, I don't exactly know, you know, the, the details of it because I was so young at the time. Uh, but then I remembered, you know, how I started was my, my dad, again, you know, took me to the YMCA. And my initial instructor, my very first instructor, who was like a father to me, I just think the world of him, um, his name is Dr. Philip Hill. And he ran a school called Hill Sitters Karate, uh, based out of Silver Spring, Maryland. And he is an offshoot of one of the other local schools in the area. Uh, and, and, and Phil, you know, as we called him, um, you know, he's a PhD, extremely brilliant guy. Uh, he just wanted us to call him Phil. So we called him Phil. And, um, you know, I remember we, uh, you know, when we were training uh, as kids, the one thing that really stood out to me about his school and the way things were done was uh, he was very approachable. Uh, the school was one where, you know, it was Tung Sudo, but it was non-traditional. And, and he called it non-traditional Tung Sudo because we didn't focus on the traditional forms. Uh, our whole focus was sparring. As a matter of fact, we didn't even have katas until about uh, intermediate level. And I can remember, you know, I was training, you know, white, our, our belts went, uh, what were they? white, yellow, then green. That was the sequence of our belts at the time. And I can remember, you know, all we did was sparring, partner work, drills, contact pad work, things like that. And, um, you know, looking back at it, it was like the greatest thing ever. And I remember right around intermediate level, he introduced some katas that he had created. Um, they weren't really traditional at all. Uh, you know, they were for the purpose of teaching technique. Uh, very different approach looking back at it. At the time, though, we didn't realize um, what was there. Because give me an example. You know how like today, you know how you have YouTube, right? You know how you have like, a, sure, sure. You, know, um, you, you know, people are go online, you can figure it out. That just didn't happen. You know, I grew up in a very, very different time. You know, I was taking karate in the, the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, it's not as old as some. But for me, that I remember that very vividly. We We just weren't allowed to train at multiple schools. You didn't train in multiple places you had one teacher you had one sensei and that was it there was no mma uh that was just not a thing 
you know, and the way that I had actually found that school, just like I said, was my, my dad went to the local Y and, you know, the, the instructor he taught out of the Y. And um, I remember the very, very, very first instructor I had, it was actually one of his assistants. Her name was Joanna, Joanna Brooks. And um, Joanna was, I think, a red belt at that time. Now, that system, red belt wasn't like grandmaster. It was the belt right before uh, black belt in that system, you know, at least the way he did it as a, uh, you know, like a mom and pop school. And, um, you know, I trained with her for a while. And I remember the very first day that I saw him, I remember like it was yesterday. I was a little boy. He was probably, I think at the time, probably mid to late thirties, you know, the, you know, my, the head instructor, he came in, the guy was just in amazing shape. And, you know, you just, he looked the part. And I remember, I, I didn't quite understand what martial arts was at that time. Uh, but I remember seeing him, he did a little bit of a demonstration, something like that. And I just remembered I was probably a white belt or something, you know, maybe with a stripe or something like that on my belt. And I was just like, I want to be a black belt. I didn't know what that entailed. Uh, I didn't know exactly what that had to do with anything, but I just remembered from a young age, again, I was about five. That's what I wanted to do, you know, and I'm not saying as, as for work or for, you know, for a livelihood, but I knew I wanted to be a black belt. When I saw him, when I saw the instructor, it was magical to me. And I remember that was my very first uh, couple memories, you know, of the martial arts. I love it. Okay. So that tells us about your start. How did you get to, from there to where you're at today? Oh my gosh. Okay. So here, here we go. So, you know, it's a, it's a long, long, long road. I mean, I, I, I would not be doing justice to the journey if I didn't bring up probably one of the most important people in the journey, which is actually my mom. Um, I, I can remember, you know, I, I can't even remember probably on one hand, how many times she did not come to a class or she did not come to a belt exam or did not come to a tournament or something like that. And, you know, to my understanding of it, I think I, I got, um, you know, Steve, I was in the martial arts, um, I think at a time right when group classes were kind of really coming up, you know, we had to wear guards, uh, I believe June Ree, he was the big name at the time who, you know, he had kind of started merchandising the sparring gear. And, you know, we had uh, kind of some of the earlier sets of sparring gear. And, um, and I just remembered, you know, my mom would take me to all these classes, you know, week after week after week after week on Saturdays. And, you know, one time a week training turns into two times a week training turns into three times a week training and, and more. And uh, one thing led to another, you know, at least in, in the system that I trained in, it should take somewhere around six to 10 years to get to black belt. I know every system can be a little bit different. Um, I think I was the world's longest red belt. Now, keep in mind, red belt is, uh, you know, it's the belt right before black belt. They, I think our instructor, he inserted uh, red belt uh, between brown and black belt because it was taking students so long. Uh, to get from brown to black, that people were actually quitting. At least that's how I understood the story when I had heard it. And um, long story short, it took me four and a half years uh, to go from red to black. And I was about, I think I was 16 years old when I got my black belt, still remember it today, uh, still remember the exam. And, you know, I know to answer your question, like, how did I get from there to here? I think it's just a lot of sticking with it. You know, I was really nothing special, especially back then, you know, like, um, I still don't view myself as such. And, I think a lot of it comes down to is when you have an Asian mom who doesn't let you quit anything, um, that was really the secret sauce. You know, you, you get to a point where you just keep showing up. Other people were taller, stronger, faster, uh, everything. I mean, I, I tell this to my students all the time. If you lined up a hundred people in a row, you know, from that school, I'd probably be the last one you would have picked to be a black belt. And the only thing that I did better than other people was I just showed up. I showed up all the time. You know, she, my mom was merciless about letting us show up. She'll never admit it now. She's like a lamb when you talk to her, but she was like a tiger in terms of, you know, getting us to, to be the best that we could be. And, you know, 
you know, in terms of how did I get to where I am today, I think a lot of it came down to, um, and I hope I'm not deviating from your question here, but I, you know, I look at um, martial arts today, you know, pre-COVID especially. I think it's a different world today. I think kids can kind of negotiate if they go to class. I think uh, parents listen a little too much to the kids and, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, the parents have the expertise. They have the life experience. And for me, you know, um, my mom said to me very early on, she said, uh, you know, if you want to stop training, that's fine. You can do that when you get to black belt. And I thought to myself, I was like, I'll show her, you know, that's exactly right. I'll stop training when I get to black belt. But little did I realize that that was probably one of the smartest things she did, you know, and um, probably the, the toughest time for me, I think, was at advanced rank. You know, I was an advanced rank uh, brown belt. I remember, you know, there was brown, red, black. Those were our advanced belts. And um, man, I wanted to quit every day. It was really, really hard. I hated sparring. I was really scared every single time I went to class. Um, I was scared of getting beat up. Not beat up like, you know, bloodied up, but like it was tough. And I think back then we, we, we were in a different era back then. You know, people didn't write letters or emails complaining. Uh, you didn't call in to get upset or anything like that. You, you, you licked your wounds at the end of the class and you showed back up the next day. And that's just how it was done. You know, we didn't have a, and I hope I'm not offending anyone when I say this, but it's kind of true. You know, we didn't have this uh, culture of everyone gets upset. You know, we didn't have a culture of, you know, uh, everyone gets an eighth place trophy. None of that existed. It's you did it or you didn't. And I think that's kind of, and to answer your original question of how did I get where I am today? I don't think I'd be where I am today, martial arts wise, if everyone got a trophy. I don't think I'd be where I am today. Um, you know, if, if we had a culture back then of uh, catering to everyone's desires, you know, because according to my calculation, Steve, I, I should have been a black belt like four years prior to the date that I got my black belt. And um, I was telling one of our instructors, you know, I watched my uh, original black belt video back from 1998. I watched it the other day. It was on a VHS tape. Uh, one of my friend's uh, fathers, they recorded it for me and I saw it. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world did they give me a black belt? I was horrible. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but I, when I saw that recording, you know, at that time, I thought it was like Bruce Lee. I mean, but I was definitely far from it. So, you know, how did I get where I am today? I think it's just a whole lot of not giving up. I think it's a whole lot of keep going, even when it's inconvenient. I tell this to my students all the time, you know, the, the most important class to go to is the next class, but the, the, there's one class that's more important than that. And that's the class that you don't want to go to. And I think that's what I really got from my mother was, uh, you know, you got to discipline yourself to show up even if you don't feel like doing it, you got to do it with a positive attitude. Now, you know, I know I've talked a lot about her, but I got to give a ton of credit to my, my original Tung Sudo instructor, Phil. He was just, um, he was, he was the role model. You know, he was what all of us wanted to be like, you know, he, he was very, very soft-spoken. If anyone, you know, ever met him or, you know, trained under him, you know that he didn't say much, but he didn't have to, um, you know, cause he, he led by example. He always has always, you know, from, from what I saw always did. And, um, you know, he, he, he inspired us. He, he always made us want to be better. And I think karate was more than just kicking and punching. It was a lifestyle. You know, we wanted to be black belts in and outside of class, not just in class when we're sparring, but it, it, it pushed us to be better people. So I think that's why, you know, I've been able to get to where I'm at today, martial arts wise, is that I think that fire was ignited in me early. You know, I saw it through my mom, through my original instructor. Um, it's this whole idea of continuously improving that just, it always stuck with me. It always did. Right on. No, I think you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head with that. It's, you know, you're not going to get where you're at and being around as long as you have without having that persistence and that commitment. So bravo. 
So to tie Thank back you. just a little bit, so I know we mentioned uh, Tank Sudo, and we've obviously mentioned Kempo, which I'm going to break the news for everybody. Congratulations on getting your seventh degree here recently. Bravo. Thank you so much. Thank and you, thank you. So on a side note, besides the Tang Sudo and Kempo, uh, I know you've trained in some other lineages as well. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what levels or whatnot, but you, can you kind of fill in the you know training history on those for us? Yeah, one one that comes to mind that really is near and dear to my heart is uh, Aikido. Um, I trained uh, at the Shobukan Dojo in uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, Sautama Sensei, he, was the, he is the Shihan of the dojo and you know i i had limited exposure training with him just because he he traveled in from his uh home in florida uh, i think in mayaka florida and um i i know there's other people who trained there much longer and had higher rank but the, the the impact that it made on me was huge um i got to 6q there which is technically the in my understanding the lowest belt um but it wasn't about belt to me i think the first promotion took about 30 hours or so. I think it, I trained over 120 hours, if I recall, to, to get there. Um, I just never was hungry for rank. And Steve, the, the thing that was really cool about it was when you train after being a black belt, most of the time it's not about rank. And for me, because I was already training as a black belt when I was training in Aikido, I mean, it was, it was cool to get rank. It was cool to get rewarded and you know get your hakama and do all these things. But I, I think the thing that really was most important to me was knowledge. You know, it was knowledge and skill and learning something that was applicable. It's kind of like, you know, I, I have friends and my wife, you know, who've gotten masters. I personally haven't. And um, I, I can tell you this, everyone who I've talked to, they say the same thing, which is just, uh, you know, it's, it's about, it's the approach. It's different. You know, you, you go in there for a different reason. And, and I know for me, any art that I've trained in post 1998, you know, when I got my original initial black belt, it was never really about rank. It, it never is. Not in Kempo, not in Aikido, not in anything. And I, I think with the Aikido, it was the people that I trained with. You know, the instructors were just phenomenal, just world class, the best. And, you know, there's a couple who come to mind, uh, Steve uh, Schneid, uh, Chris Royal. Um, these men were just unbelievable role models, great martial artists. They tied together amazing lessons. I think I became a better teacher. Um, you know, in terms of what I do, because I saw how they teach. And I think that's something that all black belts should do. I think all black belts, we kind of got to eat a little humble pie sometimes and, you know, go other places and try different things. And when you see what's possible and when you see what's out there, um, man, it made me better. But Steve, the thing that I think really made me better was when I had to wear a white belt again. That was the first real time that I had to wear a white belt, you know, repeatedly week after week. I dabbled in other things in college, but uh, nothing worth mentioning. And I think that when I had to wear a white belt again, it was so humbling. And I had a deeper appreciation for the students that I was teaching in my, in my karate school, which I do as a, for a living. And I got to tell you, I think I just became a better teacher. You know? So that was one of the arts that I did was, um, was Aikido. And uh, I think that's probably the main one you know, worth mentioning. That's the, the only other one with, with rank. You know, I've done other things. I've trained in Kung Fu. I've trained in other things, but you know, nothing that really caught my attention, nothing that really, um, some arts I wasn't impressed with, to be honest, not so much because of the art, but mainly because of the people or the instructor, no offense to anybody. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, there's, I always say this: there's a different martial art for everybody. And I think there's a different martial art for every phase of life. And I think in the phase of life that I was in, um, I think I was at a fork in the road, you know, right when I was training in Aikido was also when I was starting my Kempo journey. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to get into that later, you know, here as we share our time here. Um, I'll tell you the story how I got started in Kempo. But 
I remember, you know, I was at this fork in the road where I was training in Aikido and I was training in Kempo at the same time. And I think I just wanted to hit stuff. And I think I just wanted to do a little something with more combat and less harmonious. I know Aikido is all about harmony, but, you know, I, I gained a ton. It was wonderful. Uh, I have nothing but respect and love for the for my Aikido friends and instructors that I've trained with over the years. Um, but at the same time, I think Kempo spoke to me because it's just the phase of life that I was in and that I'm currently in. Um, it's just kind of where I'm at right now, you know, and what I'm ready for. So, you know, if you're listening to this and, you know, you're thinking about doing other martial arts, I can tell you from my own martial arts journey, um, it's all about timing. You know, it's all about timing. I think that, you know, I've seen so many other martial arts, especially because of the internet, because of YouTube, things that I probably wouldn't have explored, I have explored now. Uh, and I found out maybe it wasn't for me or some things I found out it was for me. Um, you know, we can get into the impact of the internet in a little bit later, but but man, I, I'd say Kempo was the other art, you know, post Tang Sudo that um, has dramatically changed my life for the better in so many ways. Um, you know, mainly if you said, what's the common tie with all of these martial arts? I'd say it's relationships. You know, it's the relationships and the friendships. I think that's what keeps me going, you know, and I know and early on in the podcast, you asked me, you know, how did we get uh, from, from five years old uh, V to here? It, it wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a ton of great people if there wasn't a ton of friendships and camaraderie and brotherhood and sisterhood and all of that, there's no way, you know, it's, it's too much of a long journey and a hard journey. And um, it, it's such a fun journey when you do it together with other really good people. Yeah. You hit the nail right on the head. I mean, my favorite people in the world that I spend the most time with are the people that I smack around on the mats or smack me around on the mats. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, I said this on one of my That's other shows recently. I don't remember which one it was, but yeah, you know, it's it's amazing. It's like all of us who put on these pajamas and put on these you know fancy belts and stuff like that, whatever whichever uniform of choice it happens to be, seems like we can all just get along. We get on the mat and just start working stuff out. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it just amazes me when you know that stuff happens. You get out there and you know I got a difference of opinion with this guy. Hey, let's go work it out on the mat. All of a sudden, we like each other a whole lot more. You know, it's funny. I was looking at my, my closest friends. I think, you know, I can't even tell you how many of them are martial artists or current and or former martial artists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's what I do. You know, it's what I do. You know, we're, we're, we're always safe wherever we go. No, we're not looking for fights, you know, pe you know pre-COVID, of course. Um, but no, you're exactly right. I think some of your best friendships are, are martial artists, you know, and uh, you have these common ties that, um, you know, you can literally do combat together on the mat, you know, with control, of course. Uh, and then it just kind of makes some of the deepest friendships. You know, I think about our Kempo with the IKCA and the, the brotherhood we share there. It's just some of the best people. Some, you know, we have such distance between us, physical distance. Uh, I feel closer to some of my Kempo brothers than I do to some of the people who live down the street from me. Agreed. No argument here. So, yeah. uh, so all of that tying together there, being in and out of so many different places and experiencing so many different arts it really does come back to the people that are involved with those because I've had the opportunity to be mm -hmm. put on that white belt. I, I can't even tell you how many times, whether it's just taking one class or whether I join up for, with a school and, you know, I stay there for four to six months or something like that. And just, you know, for whatever reason, I like the instructor. We just don't click on a student instructor basis. That's going to happen a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of those things where if you don't get out there and train in other things besides your primary, you're not going to see those other perspectives. And sometimes, it, you know, you'll find something that you click really well with, even though the material may not be super, like, amazingly awesome, but you click so well with the instructor or the other people that are there, it's worth experiencing just to have that perspective from their opinions and what they've been through. Right. 
then conversely, you can get this absolutely dynamite material, but you don't click with anybody. You know, that's, so I got to tell you about that. Um, you, you, you reminded me of something. You know, I remember my initial training um, in Kempo, and you know, it's 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 the truth. So I'm going to share it with you. Is you know, I remember when I first started training, um, my my very 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 first Kempo instructor, which was through the IKCA, was uh, Sifu Greg Payne. Um, Greg is just, I think, the world of him. He's just like this amazing martial artist, a great guy. And um, it's a bit of a story, but I think when you hear it, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, how did this all come together? Um, so rewind the clocks to probably, I don't know, um, late 2000s, early 2010s. It's probably 2007, 2008, 2009, some, somewhere in that range. I'd have to check my notes to be for sure. Um, I remember I was, um, do you remember a, a website called uh, meetup.com? I don't know if you remember that, but I don't even know if it's still around. Um, you know, I was running my martial arts school. And, you know, for marketing purposes, I was looking for ways to, to get the word out about, you know, what we do and, you know, attract new students into the program. So, you know, put this uh, some kind of ad or blurb or invite out there to people to come out. And, you know, one day uh, there was two people who came in. We've had a lot of guests come through, uh, but we had two brothers uh, who came in. And I'll tell you their names at the end of the story. But, um, you know, they came in and uh, they were training with us and they were green belts. And now you got to keep in mind in Tung Sudo, green belt is beginner belt. So, you know, the belts go white, yellow, green, or white, orange, yellow, green, or some version of that, right? You know, at least those are the beginner belts in our system. And so when I saw green belt, I, you know, I didn't think to ask, and maybe my awareness level wasn't high enough at that time. You know, I thought, oh, you know, these guys are beginners. Well, you know, we did some techniques together, and some of their kicks were kind of low. I kept on noticing they kept on kicking to the groin all the time. And I was like, guys, get your kicks up. And I was kind of, you know, barking at them a little during class kept on kicking to the groin and had these really, you know, and I, I jokingly say this now, these really sloppy kicks, which I call snide kicks, you know, snide kicks are a mixture between like a snap kick and a side kick. They kind of come in a diagonal and they were hopping in as they were doing it, kicking the groin all the time. And I'm like, what is this? But I could tell there was something behind it. They were, they were good. They were really good green belts, you know? And so uh, they were kind of going hard with some of the students. So, you know, I put on my guards that day and I normally never do. And, you know, sparred with them and trained with them. You know, we had a good good bout of a couple rounds. And, you know, as they were getting ready to head out for the day, I thanked them and everything. And one of our other instructors who just happened to be hanging out, he normally leaves early, he went over and talked to them. Um, now, I'll tell you who they were. They were uh, Josh and Joey Pester. Um, and they're, they're black guys for the IKCA. Yeah. And so they had come by to our class that night because their father who's a huge martial arts enthusiast i don't think he's a practitioner but i know he's big into the history and lineage and all these things i think he was writing a paper or something like that at this time so anyway josh and joey came by and um you know for whatever reason you know i thanked them and i appreciated them coming through and we were very nice and cordial to one another and then uh one of our instructors chris you know he um he just somehow got to be he struck up a friendship with them stuck with them and whatnot so Chris, you know, who's one of our instructors still, he, um, he's, me and him are just, you know, good friends. We've been at each other's weddings as groomsmen, just, you know, we, we go back a long, long way. And um, so he ended up uh, going to train with Josh and Joey's instructor at that time. So Chris comes back one day and he's like, V, he's like, dude, you got to come and train with these, you know, he's telling me about their instructor. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Right. So he keeps on staying on me about this. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. You got to come train. Now, Chris and I, you know, we, we love training. We love doing all this. So I ended up going out. So I drive up to Gaithersburg, which is about a good 20, 25 minutes from where I live uh, at that time. 
and I go there and I see this big dude, strong dude wearing, you know, you, you've met Greg, you know, uh, wearing his all black gi, you know, you know, the old sensei style with the, no shirt on the inside, you know, the, the gi's opened up so all the way down to the belly button. You know, someone's been training a long time when they dress like that, right? And um, so he's doing his stuff and, I, and he was wearing a first degree black belt at the time. So, you know, I judge the book by its cover and I'm like, why are we here? The guy's wearing a first degree belt. You know, and I was just judging a belt by its cover. Well, let me tell you something, Steve. He started moving. And I was like, holy moly, I'll keep this PG. And, um, you know, he was like moving and he was like whacking these guys hard. And I mean, it was not tongue sudo. This was something, you know, I didn't really understand Kempo. Like I'd heard Kempo, and, but I've never really been in a Kempo class. I think I was hooked after I saw that. And so, you know, for whatever reason, without going into details, the group classes just weren't for me. It didn't, you know, it could have been time. I think it could have been the group. I don't know. So that, you know, I trained there for about a month or two or whatever. I think I got to Orange Belt. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, but fast forward the clock, I think a year went by. And then for whatever reason, um, you know, stayed in touch with Sifu Greg. And um, I ended up training with him privately. And I trained with him one-on-one. And you got to keep in mind, my Tung Sudo black belt, I trained strictly in group classes, never had a private lesson. Our teacher was kind of in the mindset of, you know, literally one of his most famous sayings in Tung Sudo, going back to my original Tung Sudo instructor, Phil, you know, someone asked him, how do you get better at kicking? He, he looked at us, you know, you got to kick, kick more, you get better at kicking. And that was the extent, I mean, he, obviously he taught more than that, but I, and I'm kind of, you know, speaking a little bit exaggerated here, but he was that was kind of the, I went from that instruction from a group setting where the mindset was just do it more and you get better, which had a lot of merit, by the way, which I really, really loved that way of teaching. And then when I trained one-on-one with Greg, it was just a whole nother way. You know, so if you imagine, imagine the number of uh, instruction in a group, maybe you might get two or three adjustments, right? You know, like the instructor comes up just to you, just to fix you, right? As you know, maybe you watch the, the demonstration in the front of class and that's how you learn. Well, when you're one-on-one and you're training for one to two hours at a time, man, you're getting corrected all class long. It's yeah, intense, you're under a microscope. Right? So, yeah. So, I mean, and you know, I was Greg's training partner the whole time. And I don't, and I don't know if you've seen Greg or myself next to each other. He's like twice my size. So, I mean, you remember I told you he was hitting people pretty hard? Yeah, I was the punching bag every class. So, I mean, at the time, I mean, I loved it, but I hated it, but I loved it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and he would just beat the crap out of me every week. And I, and I got to tell you a couple of funny stories when I was training with him. I mean, we were trained at all times of the day. And, you know, sometimes five in the morning, sometimes 11 at night. And I think I think I was very serious with my girlfriend, my, my girlfriend, my wife, you know, my wife now was my girlfriend back then. I think maybe we got engaged. I can't remember the exact timing of it. And I remember she would be like, where are you going? Like, you know, like, who are you going to go see? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go train with Sifu. You know, like, and that's, that's just, you know, what I said. She was like, you're really going at 11 at night to go train with Sifu? I'm like, yes. And then, you know, I come back all sore and bruised. Up and like, you know, like, uh-huh, you're going to train with Sifu, eh? So, you know, one day she popped by and saw us and, you know, it, you know so we get a funny laugh out of that. Um, so I remember a couple of times I was training with Greg. Um, true story. I couldn't make the class. And now, you know, he's super, super traditional. He's got black belts and I think about five or six other styles, something like that. Goju black belt, American Kempo black belt, Shotokan black belt, uh, judo black belt. The guy's a beast. And um, to train with him one-on-one for as long as I did, um, I had to like 
I don't want to say beg, but ask him repeatedly, probably over the course of a year. At least that's how I remember it. He might remember it differently, but I know I've asked him more than once to train me. And um, for whatever reason, you know, timing worked out. He took me on as a student. He's super, super traditional. You know, he was trained by a traditional Shotokan family style art. And, um, you know, I remember I missed class once or twice. Steve, I'm not kidding you. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew I was going to be in trouble, right? But that next class that I missed, I can count on one hand how many times I missed with him over the span of like five, six years of private training. I'm not kidding you. I think we did stances the whole class. Now, Ooh, I, I'd I been training martial arts for probably, oh my God, it was horrible. You know, like I trained in martial arts for probably about 20 years at that time. And he had me doing stances. And then I think another time I missed a class, I think we took Beheading the Dragon, which is the first move in the IKK, IKCA curriculum. I'm not kidding you. We did that the entire class and i was the dragon and you know if the move's called beheading the dragon that's not a good mix so it was it was a very very challenging time so i learned my lesson which is you make class every week you don't miss and um you know i i made kempo my priority so um yeah so you know so i think i got off on this tangent telling you the story how i got here so uh long story short you know you fast forward the very 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 first time that i met chuck and vic was in new york uh, I was on the phone with Vic, and those of you who don't know Vic Larue, he and uh, senior, excuse me, Grandmaster Vic Larue and Senior Grandmaster Chuck Sullivan uh, are the co-founders of the IKCA. I remember I was on the phone with Vic, and somehow I might have—I'm not kidding you, Steve—I might have been an orange or purple belt, but they knew that you know I was teaching locally in the Washington D.C. area. Um, I ended up helping to organize the seminar in New York. So they lived in California, I lived in the Silver Spring, Maryland area near Washington D.C., but we set up the seminar up at the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York. And, um, you know, organized the whole thing, the, the meeting room, the whatnot. And um, I got to tell you, that was the first time I, I met Chuck and Vic was at, uh, it was actually Carmine's in New York City. Great restaurant, by the way. And um, it was just unforgettable. So it went from meetup.com to meeting the brothers to meeting Greg to stop taking Kempo. I almost quit, I think, you know, because I wasn't, the group class just wasn't for me. Fast forward, I somehow got linked up with him for private training, just took off from there, went to Black Belt with him there. You know, he promoted me to Black Belt. I'm one of uh, Sifu Greg Payne's uh, Black Belts, his direct Black Belts, and um, ended up organizing, I think, three, four, five seminars with the IKCA now. You know, the one in New York in uh, 2012, 2013. We did one here in Silver Spring. I helped organize that one. Uh, we did another one, uh, AC Wiley and myself. You know, we've done two mat seminars together uh, with the Senior Grandmaster Chuck's permission. Uh, and we did one for our Kaizen, uh, for my, the school that I run. We did a seminar through that, and uh, Chuck had come by here two years ago. So it's kind of this really weird winding road uh, to how you and I got onto this call where, um, you know, just imagine had a bunch of those things not happened and a couple stars not aligned. So I bring this up because, you know, everyone's martial arts journey is different. I think there's a little bit of luck in everyone's journey, and luck not in the sense of, you know, getting promoted but luck in the sense of meeting the right person, being at the right place at the right time, but also being prepared, you know, being prepared, doing your work, doing your practice. You know, I noticed uh, one of the things that I noticed very early on was uh, I, I can't say it on the podcast because I got to keep it kid friendly, but uh, Greg ha would tell us that where he would put his boot uh, if someone didn't do their extensions. <laughs> you know? And he was very vivid in his description of where he would stick his boot. And um, I learned from the group class that when it was time to practice or he gave homework or he told us, hey, you got to do these extensions to do it. So 
man, I just did the work. I did the homework. I was always prepared. Um, I guess I was afraid of the boot. I don't know. But, you know, long story short was um, it was this long, winding road that definitely started with Tung Sudo because I think I learned how to learn by getting a black belt, um, you know, through Tung Sudo. It took me 10 years to get a black belt in Tung Sudo, plus the next 10 years I trained with that same instructor. So I had about 20 years with my Tung Sudo instructor. I had about, about six years or so, maybe seven, directly training with Greg. And, um, you know, now I, I always consider Greg to be my teacher, but I definitely consider uh, Senior Grandmaster Chuck to be my teacher as well. And, um, you know, my primary instructor at this point. So, um, you know, long story short is it's, uh, it's been a winding road, but it's been amazing. You know, I've had some of the best teachers in the world. I think that was a huge part of it. I just, I knew what I was looking for in a teacher. You know, Phil was amazing. You know, always has been, always will be. Uh, Greg, I always consider him to be my teacher. Super, super uh, grateful to him and nothing but love and respect for him and, and, and the same feelings for Chuck. So uh, that's, that's how we got here. So it's this long road, but um, it, it, it's, the, it's probably the best journey I think I could have ever wished for. I mean, for those in the, who are listening out there that are not familiar with it, the term for black belt originally was uh, created by Jigoro Kano, and it was called Shodan, uh, which literally translates to initial level or first level, depending on how you translate it. But it means basically you've completed all the basic material and now you're ready to really learn. And that's basically exactly what you just described. So dead on. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you don't mind me mentioning this, I mean, I, I think my, my real learning happened after Black Belt. I don't, I, I mean, when I look back on it, like those first 10 years, they went by like, like that, you know? And I think at the time, I wanted to get a belt so bad that I didn't really focus on getting the skill. And now that I understand the formula, you know, I view it like a combination lock. You know, if you, if you have a combination lock and you know the combination, it opens every time, right? I think now when I approach a new martial art, I don't think, can I get a black belt? I think, do I want to put in the time to get it? Do I enjoy the system? Do I enjoy the instructor? Do I enjoy the camaraderie? You know, do I enjoy the, you know, and I'm looking at some other things right now, not for belts, not for rank. Um, but just for personal knowledge, you know, not to teach, not to do anything, but just for me, you know, for my personal time. I've tried to do other things, you know, I've tried uh, other hobbies and things like that. And, you know, all have not been my thing, but, you know, I, I, I'm a martial artist. That's what I enjoy doing. And, um, you know, I think first degree black belt, like you said, it's, it's, it's a beginning. It's a, it's your key to explore. You know, my, my first black, my first teacher, he said, uh, you know, when you get a black belt, you got a key to the city. He was referring to, and you can always come back at any time and train with the group. I kind of viewed it as you kind of understood how to learn right now. And I think that's probably one of the best things I took away from, you know, getting that first black belt was you understand a little bit better. You know, and I think that, you know, Steve, I think I told you this was, um, it was that second set of 10 years. So the first 10 years, I, I don't even know how I got to black belt. Years 11 through 20, that's when I figured out what I did through years one through 10. You know, I figured out, and you know, I got really good at sparring uh, through through losing a whole lot and getting hit in the face a whole bunch, and that's not good for your health. But you know, that's what I did. I used to block with my face and make all these stupid mistakes. And you know, now I look back, it 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 helped me both on and off the mat. Those those years and years and years and years of training. You know, I had some of the best sparring partners, some amazing fighters that I got to fight with. Um, you know, and and so coming back to uh, you know present day, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at other arts right now, you know, thinking about other things to do. Um, nothing worth mentioning yet. I'll, I'll let you know when those, <laughs> when that comes, but you know, when I look for another school and this might be something for, if you're a black belt listening to this, um, 
I'll tell you my criteria that I look for in a school is I look at number one, who's teaching, you know, I, I got to make sure if I'm going to put my time somewhere and be away from my, my two boys, I have a four-year-old and a six-month-old. Um, if I'm going to be away from my family, be away from my kids and my wife, it, it better be for a good reason. You know, I look at, um, I look at the school and I say, who are the people training there? You know, I look at my schedule and say, can I consistently get to this class? Because if I'm going to dedicate myself to this, I want to do it and do it right. Not because I want to get to black belt, but because I want to learn the skills that go with it. I want to dedicate myself and immerse myself as much as humanly possible. Um, and then I also think to myself, you know, uh, is this something that is a good fit today, but in five, 10, 15 years, is it still going to be a good fit? You know, so that's why I come back to what I said earlier was, you know, there's martial arts for every phase of life. And I say to myself in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, is it still going to be a good fit? And if it's not, you know, age-wise or ability-wise, I probably won't pursue that. So um, at least that's how I approach it. You know, time is precious. It's the one thing, didn't Benjamin Franklin say, uh, it's allocated It's given. It's allocated equally to all men, but squandered by most, right? Well said. I mean, I can share very similar stories from my my career as well, and it's been – Anytime I go do anything new, it's got to be because I click really well with the instructor or I'm really, really interested in the material and I can overlook what I don't click with the instructor with. And it's all got to be worth right. justifying that time commitment. So if you don't mind, I got to tell you, uh, you reminded me of something. Um, you know, I, I tell this to uh, one of my, uh, you know, he, he's a great friend of mine. Uh, you know, he was a student at one point. He's a black belt. He's multiple disciplines. His name is uh, David Mattisau. He's a IKCA black belt, as you know. And, um, you know, when he was training, you know, I was working towards my CI patch. CI is certified instructor patch. He was working towards his black building Kempo. Uh, it was one thing I used to tell to him all the time, and I tell it to all my students, but, but especially me, David and I were training one-on-one -on -one, uh, as he was coming up through the ranks. And I would tell him all the time, I said, every single black belt you train with, meaning every instructor you train with, if you train as an adult, you're going to find their weaknesses. You're going to find the holes. You're going to find out what they do wrong. The question is, can you look past that and look for the good? Because everyone has something wrong. I think the one, there's many reasons I think why I got to black belt, like I was telling you earlier on, but I think it's when you're a kid, I think you're able to look past an instructor's flaws a little bit easier because you, you don't have as strong of a filter, right? And, you know, when I look back on it, at that point. that's exactly right. You know, and so the one thing I told David was, I said, look, you know, I think, you know, it's so easy, especially as adults, you know, because we're so smart in, you know, we're able to, you know, look through things and analyze and all this. You almost have to be childlike when you're learning a martial art, because you got to remember a lot of the times these martial arts instructors, especially the ones who've been doing it forever and who are really, really good and just, just top, top notch, they're going to be lopsided, you know, lopsided, meaning they're masters and just wizards at what they do, but then they might not be the best at the website or they might not be able to send you an email on time. You know, maybe I'm talking about myself. I don't know. But, you know, there's so many things that they're, that they're just, you know, just not there. You know, it's not, it's not the best at, but man, that one thing that they do, it's just amazing. And I think that's something that I've learned over time is that when I, when I'm looking for a school to train at, you know, for another art or something like that, I never look at what they do wrong. You know, I always try to look at, okay, what is it that they do well? Is this something, not just what can I get from them, but what can I give back to the environment? Because I think that's another mistake people make is that they're always looking, you know, what can you get from me? People look at it as like a customer relationship. That's exactly the wrong way to look at it. I think when I approach martial arts, I, I, I view it as a, a teacher-student relationship. I'm not the customer. You know, I'm not a customer of, you know, any instructor that I've ever trained under. I'm their student. 
you know, and I think that is something that's going to help you to get really far that plus not looking for the flaws, you know, everyone's got flaws. It's so easy to tear people down, but man, it takes a really big person to build people up. And, and that's, that's something that I encourage everyone to do. My students, everyone's students, instructors, you know, if you want to, if you really want to get the most out of your training, you know, help your instructor, right? Build them up, you know, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about anybody. And I think back to the instructors that I've trained under, uh, I've trained under someone as a child, you know, when I was doing Tung Sudo, and I've also had the ability to train as an adult. And I got to tell you, that's, it's helped me tremendously, even as a teacher, because I have perspective, you know, I understand what the kids are going through, because I've been there, you know, I've been scared, I've been afraid to fight, I've been afraid of everything. And I've also trained as an adult, and I've been, you know, critical of this or that. And it doesn't help. You know, I think that you, you want to come in with a positive attitude every day, ready to learn, not looking for what's wrong. You know, the glass has to be half full, not half empty. And, you know, I think whenever you get to that point, if you feel that way, it's probably time to leave, you know, because you don't want to, you know, uh, disrupt that environment that's been so carefully built up over the years, I'm sure, by the instructor. Well said. And that also speaks to, you know, you'll know if you're working along with something and it's just not right fit for you. So that's when you got to go yeah. explore and see what else might fit you better. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I, uh, for the first 20 years of my career, I had no interest in training the sword. I'm just using myself as an example here. And I <laughs> shot down every opportunity that I had to train the sword because it didn't call me until one day right. my present sword instructor, his name is Julio Toribio. He's based in Nagoya, Japan. Uh, he was here locally in town to do a seminar and stopped by and gave me just literally 15 minutes of chatting about the sword and something in the way he talked about it all of a sudden changed my opinion to where now I feel like I want to learn the sword. And it's been a wonderful journey since then. I've been studying the sword now for about a year and a half. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, 20 years of non-interest and 15 minutes of conversation and just the manner manner in which he described it and what he came back to me with the impact of it changed my whole opinion. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I think that, um, you know, that, that's kind of what I look for when I'm training as well, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to find an instructor, it's, I think the martial art has to speak to you. It really does. You know, I know there, there's been numerous arts that I've thought I was going to be interested in. And, you know, I'll go down the list for you, you know, BJJ, um, you know, uh, I remember I went to a couple of judo classes, um, Taekwondo. I mean, there, there's just a bunch, you know, a screamer, a Kali, you know, all, all of these. And it, it, part of it could be the instructor, part of it could be the environment, part of it could just be timing. And like you said, you know, did it speak to you? And I, I think to myself, I think that um, I have an idea, you know, of things that I'm looking for right now, you know, in terms of training and things like that. But, you know, does it mean that the instructor needs to do a demo? You know, if you're a black belt listening to this, do you have to do a demonstration to attract, um, you know, new students or things like that? No, I think it's, I think it's your excitement. You know, I think I think it's, you know, who you are as a person, right? You know, that that attracts people to you, to your school. Um, it's the environment you create because, man, there's no shortage of people who can kick and punch. But I think there's no question, you know, and, and, and I don't think there's any shortage of family feeling. But I think there I think, you know, you want to find a positive environment that's always positive. That's always, you know, a place that people can come. It's, it's like a safe haven, you know, because I think at least in martial arts, I don't, I don't know about your schools that you've trained in, but like for me, you know, we're not attracting the, the all-star athlete who's six foot four, who can dunk a basketball or, you know, hit, hit a baseball 500 yards or whatever it might be. You know, we're a lot of the times we're attracting the people who didn't make the team or the people who need to defend themselves or we're attracting the people who are scared, you know, and who are the smaller stature people. 
that's who we attract, you know, and that's why it's so important, you know, I think to have this, this positive environment. And I know I keep saying that, but it's, it's priceless. You know, you can have, you know, 99 positive classes and, and one class where you're not positive or it's negative and that can deter someone. It takes one, one day, you know, to do that. And, and I don't think it's just about kicking or punching. I think it's about building people up. That's what I think it's about. I think there's a lot of internal growth that has to take place for the, for the kicks and punches to really, you know, grow, especially in the kids. Cause you know, I, I think, you know, this, I, I spend a lot of time teaching kids and kids classes, things like that. Uh, we have a ton of adult classes as well. Um, but you know, from my personal belief, I think it's a lot of it. It's, it's what you do between your two years and the thinking that you do. I call it the mental gymnastics that we play with ourselves between classes. If you can master the thoughts that you think between class, uh, man, you can do anything. Well, since you brought up the subject of what you're doing there locally, I know you've got a, a school that's doing very well, even in the current COVID pandemic style. So let's let's talk about uh, Kaizen Karate for a minute, if we can. Sure, sure. You know, I um I started Kaizen Karate back in 2003. Um, I'll give the really the quick run up from from 2003 till today. You know, um, it, you know the the whole idea behind what I do was I, I never intended it to be what it is today. I was doing other jobs at the time when I first started. Um, karate was just a passion of mine. It was something that I loved doing. It helped me, you know, in terms of stay on my feet and support myself. But you know, fast forward to today, um, it was really through uh, parent and student and, 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 you know, requests from, from the customer, if you will. Um, that's how we got to where we are. You know, it was parents who said, Hey, can you teach my, my kid? Or, Hey, can you start a class here? Or, Hey, can you start a class there? Um, pre pandemic, you know, we were teaching throughout Maryland, DC and Virginia, um, during the pandemic, um, you know, we're, we're teaching primarily over zoom. Um, I'll give you the details and, you know, let me know if you, you know, have questions about it, but I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're heavily zoom based, you know, we're coming up on the, the one year anniversary, you know, of the two week shutdown, you know, I, I'll leave that alone, but you know, here we are. And, um, you know, I think the thing that I can say about Kaizen today is that it's not me. It's not one instructor. It's, it's a family, you know, one of our, you know, if you said, what's the secret sauce, the secret sauce is there is no secret sauce. The secret sauce is that we have an amazing group of students and instructors and parents and people who are just um, wanting to train. You know, it's it's the the huge amount of beginners that we used to have pre-pandemic. Um, that's faded away heavily. Um, you know, we've, we've definitely been impacted by COVID in terms of uh, less students. Um, but I think the thing that we are doing right is uh, the intermediate uh, level, advanced level students all want to continue training. And, you know, despite all the challenges of, you know, COVID with the health crisis, with the financial crisis, there's so many crises that are going on, you know, during this shutdown with COVID. I think this, you know, when you know on Monday night or Tuesday night or whatever night your class is, that you have something to look forward to. You got familiar faces. You got your friends on Zoom. Uh, you know, you're doing some familiar material that, A, you're getting a good workout you're doing something that makes you feel good. You're moving yourself forward. You have this feeling of building, you know, there's been so much loss, especially financial loss, you know, during the, during the crisis. And I think when you still have the ability to build yourself and move yourself forward and work towards your goals, the people who've lost a lot and had so much taken away from them, um, it, it, it still gives this feeling of, of self-worth and dignity. You know, and I think that at least from an adult class perspective, I know that's how it feels. From a kid's class perspective, 
man, I mean, you know, there's not much sports you can do inside. I mean, you can't really swim or play basketball too well inside, but, but martial arts, you can't. And so, you know, how are we doing well? I, you know, in my eyes, I think that the, it's really the kids and the parents. You know, the parents are amazing. You know, the fact that they've all kind of turned into assistant instructors by holding pads on Zoom and, you know, just being supportive of their kids. And I'm sure they're a lot of them not wanting to train, but the parents, I'm sure, are encouraging them to show up. You know, so, um, you know, if you look at what we do, we, we teach seven days a week uh, on Zoom. Uh, we do uh, anything from private lessons all the way to group classes. Um, you know, a lot of it takes place in the afternoons and evenings, sometimes during the day, because, uh, you know, the kids' schedules have changed, you know, due to COVID. Some of them have off on, let's say, Wednesday. Um, you know, so more lessons might take place then. Uh, but, you know, starting this spring, March, April of 2021, um, you know, we're going to be um, – have more outdoor programs, you know, so there'll be more outdoor programming. We're looking towards running summer camps again on site. Uh, we're going to be doing, uh, you know, on-site programming. Plus we're going to be doing um, uh, virtual training as well, just because not everyone's ready to get back. So, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to, to where we are today? Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to just doing the right thing every single day for a really, really long time and not really doing it with an intention of trying to, to have an end goal it was just every day continuously improving you know every day you're getting better every day you're trying to improve and add another brick you know it's kind of like building a house that's never finished but every day you build you put a brick on and that's that's always been my mo is that every day we want to improve every day we want to get a little bit better because you know i can't control what other people are doing but i can control what i'm doing and i know that if every day i wake up and i try to do something to improve myself and you know help my students to improve themselves I'm, I'm eventually going to get to where I want to be. So you had, uh, you made the statement that it's, you know, like building the house where you're, it's never quite finished, right? It's a new brick every day. You're adding on to it and you're trying to just get closer to where you want to be. So how do you help your students figure out where they want to be next and where they want to go next so that they can continue, continue to stay motivated? Yeah, I mean, let me start by saying, that's a great question. I mean, let me start by saying, you know, COVID and training online, I've heard so many people, and if you're a martial artist listening to this and you're like, how do you guys train online? Well, let me start by saying it's not ideal, right? You know, there's no partner training. So everyone says there's no sparring, but what you got to realize is there's really no drills. You know, there's no instructor holding a pad. Um, you know, I like to walk around the room when I'm teaching so I can see people from different angles and maybe watch them when they think I'm not watching, but I really am watching, you know, so there's all of that is not there. But there's a whole bunch of little squares on the screen. And the one thing you can do during COVID is that you can keep people in shape. You can keep them, I like to say, stay within striking distance. You know, I remember I, I read this in an article a long time ago. There was a stuntman in, in Hollywood. He, uh, he has a goal. He said, I want to always be within two weeks of striking distance. And he, dis and he, and he defined what that meant. He said, whether it be a foot race, bike race, swimming race, martial arts competition, whatever, I want to always be two weeks away from being peak performance. And that stuck with me because his whole motto and his whole, his whole idea of training was to always be ready, always be in shape. He's never training for something, you know, like a specific event because he's always training. And so when something comes up, he's prepared, you know, he's not having to put down the Doritos and hop on the bike and do all that. It's it, that just doesn't even happen. He's just always ready. So, you know, fast forwarding to where we are with COVID and how we're dealing with it is, um, you know, the area I live in, um, it's, it's definitely some, you know, I'll put it like this, where I think um, 
families want to be outside, but only when it's safe. And I think that's safe to say of everyone, but I think we're a little bit more cautious in our area, in Montgomery County, Maryland, and Virginia, D.C., all that. And but the nice thing about what we can do is that we can train with our with the master form, right? We can train in, in the, the kata, the form that we do. We can do a lot of technique, a lot of bag work. Um, we do a lot of movement-based drills. So there's things that we can do. Uh, one thing I did early on in the pandemic, like probably when the first weeks of it hitting, I, I put a rule in place saying you can't get promoted more than one belt uh, during pandemic because we're not a – our black belt in our school is not kata-based. Um, it's heavily – uh, you know, partner drill based, you know, in terms of uh, sparring and, and whatnot. So, you know, we, we put that freeze on, especially on the upper belts, you know, and we thought that students were not going to want to train. I think it affected the youngest students. I think it, I think that Zoom training has affected the, the younger kids, the beginners, but the people who we already had a relationship with, the students who we knew, uh, the students who are intermediate and advanced, for the most part, I'd say a large part have stuck. There's definitely some who've stopped training. Um, but I think the key is consistency and I, you know, we never skipped, you know, so I think the pandemic hit, I don't know if you remember the day, it was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, we were on zoom the very next day, you know, so there was literally no classes were missed. Like we never had to do any makeups, nothing. And some of it, you can call it luck. I like to think of it as preparation. You know, I have a dojo in my basement of my house. Um, it's not where I teach from in terms of during, you know, um, pre-pandemic times but during the pandemic that's kind of my headquarters if you will and um you know I, I like to work out i like to train and i remember my very first uh and i got the inspiration from my very first tung Sido teacher his whole basement was his gym and i remember the first time i i went to his house you know he invited me over and a couple of our students and you know whatnot and um i remember we saw his home and i my jaw dropped i thought i was at like gold's gym like his whole basement had workout equipment in it like it was unreal. And he said to me something that just stuck with me. He said, you know, I could be paying a gym for the next 20 or 30 years, or I could pay my, I could buy the equipment, pay it off and own something at the end of 20, 30 years, man, did that stick with me. So, you know, I've been slowly but surely piecing together my gym over the years uh, in my basement, you know, just, you know, one weight here, two weights there, mainly through Craigslist and things like that. Um, but what I did was I put up a, a wall mounted TV prior to the pandemic and, you know, that was one of the, the big lifesavers where, you know, I still notice that a lot of people are working out of living rooms and, you know, things like that. And, you know, some people have space constraints, but I, I guess I had always thought about this way before the pandemic was just, I wanted to be able to train all the time. You know, I never wanted to have to take a day off. And I think that was a, that was a, that was a decision I made a decade ago or two. You know, when I saw what my original instructor was doing, he was, he was essentially working out every day, never having to go to the gym because he had his gym built in his own home. I mean, it was unreal. It wasn't about the, the amount of space. That's not what I'm trying to get at. It was about the ability to have freedom. And it was the ability to not have to be at the mercy of a gym or, or anybody telling you that you can't work out or you can't train. Uh, and I think that's, that really stuck with me, you know, that, and that's why I kind of built my home gym. And that's why I built it out the way that I did it. This was all pre-pandemic, by the way. And uh, put in the gym floors and everything like that. And, you know, everyone says it's expensive. It is. It's, it's very expensive if you do it at one time. It's very inexpensive if you do it brick by brick by brick by brick. And that's kind of my mantra. To, you know, my, my whole idea of life is just everything's hard if you try to do it all at once. But if you do it piece by piece by piece, it, it's not hard at all. So, you know, fast forwarding to the pandemic, um, 
I think we were just prepared. You know, there was a little bit of luck in there, um, but a whole lot of preparation. And, you know, luck and preparation, you know, what does that saying go? Uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what happened here, you know. And um, I think the same I can say for a lot of our instructors. Um, you know, some, many of our instructors have kind of not home gyms, but, you know, home workout spaces where, you know, it's, it's a way of life. You know, we don't just come into class and teach and leave and, you know, go, you know, wolf down a, a milkshake and a bag of McDonald's and smoke a cigarette on the weekends. That's not how we roll. You know, we, we, we live it, you know, we, we train it that way. So, um, you know, where are we at right now? I think we're, I think, you know, I hope we're getting to the close to the end of the pandemic and to better days and vaccines are here and things like that. I know I just got my vaccine shot, the first one, but, um, I think the key thing is, you know, we're, we're going to be in a better place. And I, and I want to make a prediction if that's okay with you. Can I, uh, can I make a quick prediction? Be my guest. I, I think, you know, for years we would always talk about how, um, you know, the generation coming up is, you know, it's not as tough. Or they're having it easy and things like that. That changed for me. I think that during the pandemic we had a big shift in a lot of ways. I think that this next generation of martial artists who's coming up over the next one, two, three, four years, maybe in the next five years plus, I think is going to be one of the toughest generations of martial artists that have come out in a long time. Because I think that people who have stuck with their training during the pandemic, and I'm talking not, not like, you know, double dutching with attendance, you know, once a month, I'm talking like daily training, you know, like really getting after it. I think that is going to be the, the next group of really tough martial artists that are produced. And I think the, the old guard, you know, I think, you know, or people who've been teaching for a long time, I consider myself one of the old guards. So I'm not, you know, saying it as an age thing, but people who've been teaching for a long time, I don't think we can any longer say that they've had it easy because this, this, this group who's coming up now has had it tough. And I'm speaking directly to my students right now that, you know, you guys are awesome. You know, you're sticking with it and you're not giving up and it's hard and you're still doing it. And it's, in, and it's not convenient. And I say this to anyone else who's listening, you know, if you're an instructor or, or maybe you're a student in another school, man, you guys are awesome. Keep going. If you've made it this far in the episode, you know, I think the secret is just to keep going and showing up uh, even when it's not convenient. So, you know, where's Kaizen and where are we at these days? Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to shift gears to, to the Kempo. Man, we're, we're heavy on the Kempo right now, Steve. You know, the Kempo is just amazing. You know, I think we're in love with the curriculum. Um, you know, love what the IKCA is doing right now. Love what you're doing. AC's doing. Uh, Mr. Parsons, you know, uh, Chuck, Chuck, and Carl, and just you know, Stacy, and all the leadership is doing. It's um, it's in a pretty cool place, you know. And I'm just ever grateful to have found the IKCA. And uh, you know, it's I think a huge part of where we are is that we have some amazing curriculum to work with. So down the path of continuous improvement, isn't that what Kaizen mm -hmm. literally means? Yeah, I mean that that's exactly right. I mean Kaizen is a, you know, I'll tell you how I how I created the name for the school was um, you know, it was back in 2003, I think it was, you know, when I started Kaizen. And I used to go to the uh the college I went to was the uh, University of Maryland, uh College Park, the Smith School of Business. I was a business student. And uh I remember I was, you know, I was in a program called Quest. Uh, I can't remember what it stands for. It was quality management. And, you know, it was a collaboration between the business students and the engineering students. And uh, we were at Van Munching Hall one day. And, you know, I was just kind of zoning out, you know, reading the textbook and whatnot, the professors teaching and all this. And we're talking about Six Sigma and, 
you know, the Malcolm Baldridge Award and Duran and Deming and all these, you know, I'm sure, you know, all this kind of stuff to go with Six Sigma and, you know, talking about getting a, you know, working with GE to get a Six Sigma green belt, black belt, all this stuff, right? And I'm just kind of, you know, eyes getting glossed over talking about this. And I remember looking down at the textbook and it was like, I don't know if you ever had that moment when like you saw something and you're like, whoa, that's me, right? I looked down at the page and as we're talking about Six Sigma and all this kind of stuff, I looked down and there's this word. I don't know if I've ever seen it before, but it said Kaizen. And it said it's a Japanese word and it means continuous improvement. And, you know, there was a whole lot of other stuff with it, but that was the whole idea. And I remember when I saw that, I mean, I, I mean, it was just as simple as this. I'm not even kidding. I might have said it aloud, but I, I know I said it in my head, but it was just this simple and clear as day. I remember it like it was yesterday. I said, that's me. That's my strategy. That's my philosophy. Continuous improvement, period. The end. That's it. And I just remembered, like, you know, looking back at it, I think every – that's one thing that all of the teachers – uh, that I've had in martial arts, plus my mom, who's a huge influence on me. That's one thing that I always uh, gravitated to. You know, my mom was always about continuous improvement. She was the original Kaizen. You know, it, she is the original Kaizen, I should say. Uh, Phil, my original Tung Sudo instructor, he was always about getting better. You know, he, you know, one thing that was unique about him was he never really talked about the past too much. It was always about now and where are we going? always about building to the future greg same thing chuck same thing you know and i and i realize people who are winners and you know who are successful that's that's what you do you're continuously improving and um i'm sure you know this you know a lot of martial arts schools not all but at least in my observation this is just a generality that i'm making here but it was my observation at the time back in 03 at least in, in the area that i grew up in and trained in many of the schools were named after the person who formed the school and you know when i looked back at it, I was like, I don't know if I want my students to be as good as me. You know, I wanted them to be better. And I, I guess that was always my mission was, you know, I, I never viewed myself as the best. You know, I viewed myself as hardworking. Um, but I, I guess I named the school Kaizen because I wanted it to be named after a concept. And I wanted it to be named after, um, you know, I know that it might not be completely congruent with a Japanese name, teaching a Korean martial art and now doing Chinese Kempo. I, I mean, I get that. Uh, maybe we were MMA before MMA was cool, but you know, I I I, I think that uh, I think that um, it was more so the name that I just fell in love with. You know, it was the whole idea of continuously improving, and it was an idea. It was an it was a movement. And so coming back to how do you know when you arrive? You never arrive. You know, so it's it's I don't think I ever, for me personally and for my students. Uh, Steve, I can tell you this. I, I never have tried to be perfect. I think I'm a perfectionist, but I understand that perfection is not possible. I just always strive for excellence. You know, I try to be the best that I can do. And the thing that I think keeps me going is I, I constantly try to get better knowing that I'll never arrive, but still hoping that I will, if that makes sense. You know, and, and I think that during the pandemic, especially, you know, even on the darkest days, you know, when it's hard, you know, luckily, thank God we've been okay health-wise and everything like that. Family's good and friends are good. Um, but there's been some pretty dark days, you know, in terms of when it doesn't seem like things are going to get better and turmoil that's going on in the world. Um, but I, I'll tell you what's kind of brought me peace through all this. It's my training. Um, and notice I didn't say teaching, you know, it's the teaching brings peace. It does. Um, but the training really brings peace. Uh, when it's just me and myself, in the bag or lifting I love lifting weights and, you know, running and doing all those things. But I think I got that from, from Phil, 
you know, he was my first Tong Sudo instructor. I think I, I picked up those habits of, you know, your body is your temple. You get one of them. And, you know, if you're going to do things that are maybe not constructive or slightly destructive, if you have to do those things, you know, whatever they might be, moderation. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Kaizen was just, um, it's that philosophy of just always trying to get better. You know, I, I, I was definitely afraid when I would see uh, people ahead of me, you know, no offense to anyone who's got a huge belly, but, you know, with huge bellies or out of weight or, you know, doing things that weren't good for them or not in the shape that they wanted to be. Um, you know, on a personal note, I remember my dad, he was, I think, 41 when he had me. He, he passed away a few years ago. And I remember he never really used to, like, uh, run with us, you know, when we were kids or, you know, he never, I mean, he would ride bikes with us and stuff, but, um, you know, he wasn't as active as maybe some of the younger dads were. And I just always remember that. Like, I always wanted to make sure that I was always physically able to do things. So for me, a lot of it is uh, I'm all about longevity. And I think that um, I've always viewed the martial arts as it's like a fine wine or it's like a antique china. You know, there's very few things that get better with age. And, you know, you look at uh, football, you know, if you're a professional football player, your stock value drops drastically, you know, as you get older, you know, take away Tom Brady out of that equation. I hope that's not a sensitive topic for anyone listening, but you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, professional basketball, most of these sports, you know, the older you get, your stock value drops, you know, but martial arts, uh, fine wines, antique China, those, those things that the, the, the more time you put in, the better you get, hopefully. And, you know, that's one thing that always was cool to me about martial arts. You know, you look at Chuck, I mean, he's amazing, right. You know, and at, to be doing it as long as he has and as, as a, at a higher level as he does it. And I think that's what always stuck with me, you know, was I always wanted to do something for an extended period of time, never having to stop, you know, God willing, as long as I can do it, I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, that, that definitely is a motivator for me. Yeah. You mentioned Chuck at the time of this recording, he is 89 years old, still teaches every week. And anytime he goes to teach at a seminar, the first thing he does is he wants to spend time with the most junior students in the room because he sees the biggest bang for the buck in the amount of time spent and the amount of material they get out of that time training, which is just a testament to how much he really cares. So I got to tell you uh, two Chuck stories, if that's okay. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, I drove down to, uh, to Florida and I, now what I'm going to tell you is high energy and low IQ. So no one copy what I'm about to tell you, but um, I, you know, I drove from <laughs> Silver Spring, Maryland down to uh, Boynton Beach, Florida, and came back within 24 hours. Um, so I think it took me, I think it was about 24, you know, it was about, sorry, it was about 24 hours or so worth of driving for staying less than a day. Um, Cause I just, you know, my schedule was such that it was busy. I had to work or something like that. And I remembered, I, I went down, uh, there was one of our instructors at the time who was down in the area and um, you know, me and him in our infinite intelligence, we decided to go out and party hard that night. Uh, so we went to whatever the local bar was, and one drink turned into a lot. And wait, 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 know, wait, 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 wait. I'm <laughs> sorry. I, I need to double check myself here. You said yeah. Silver Spring, Maryland to Florida. That's 900 miles. Yeah, that's exactly right. So again, high, you know, high energy, low IQ. Okay, I had Don't to clarify that for that. myself yeah, that, for a second that, there. Okay, got it. Back to story. Got it. Now, you know, for a while, I was uh, very anti-flying in planes and things like this. I watch way too many movies, so I will drive anywhere. You know, my, I used to tell my wife, I was like, we can go to Europe if you want. She's like, how? I was like, you know, from Alaska to Russia, it freezes over at some point. In, you know, I'm sure we can, <laughs> so, you know, we can go to South America. You can, you know, go through the, uh, you know, meet the cartel on the way down there. So, um, 
you know, but I remember I, I drove down to Florida and just, just really not a good idea. And um, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but red belt in the IKCA is grandmaster. Is that right? Uh, actually, no, the red belt in the IKCA is exclusively, exclusively reserved for the sitting senior grandmaster. Okay, so there's one person, right? It's the top, top dog. So, so Correct. check out this story. So this, this is my first Chuck story that I, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 you know, beginners and all this. So we, so we drive down there. Now, Chuck had flown in from California to Florida. And then I had driven down. Now, he flew in. He was smart. I drove down from, from Maryland. And um, I remember I, I went out, you know, me and him, me and one of my instructor buddies, we went out the night before, you know, and I told him, I said, look, dude, you've got to be there on time. You know, the, it starts right at nine o'clock. Now, prior to going out that night, you know, I talked to Vic and Chuck and they were all there. And I said, hey, do you think I can get a private lesson with you guys? Now, you know, I was expecting them to say no or something like that. And, and I think for whatever reason, Chuck said, sure, show up at, you know, he's like, V, show up at eight. And part of me was like, great. And then the other part of me was like, hold on, that's really early, right? So, um, you know, I'd gone out the night before, probably not the best idea, definitely not a good idea. And, you know, I got there at eight to do the private lesson with Chuck. And man, he was probably, I think, like young 80s at the time. He hit me so hard. And maybe it's because my reflexes are down. I don't know. But he popped me like right in the face. And I don't know if he meant, I don't, I doubt he would have mean to do that. And he, he hit me a couple times in the body. And I was like, damn, he still got it. He's really, really good. And we just drilled these basics. So that wasn't the point of the story. This one is, hopefully you find it a little funny. You know, um, the buddy I was telling you about, he was supposed to be there at the training. Well, nine o'clock comes, he's not there. Nine thirty comes, he's not there. I'm calling this guy on the phone, right? Now he likes to wear cutoff shirts. Uh, you know, we sort you know, didn't wear his gi. He comes strolling in at like 10, 15. Chuck's already running, running line drills. Some of the other guys from the other organization down there are down there as well. And uh, some of the who's who in the Kempo world was at this seminar. So uh, this instructor buddy of mine, he's probably, I don't know, mid-20s at the time, something like this, comes strolling in, half you know, hungover, and uh, wearing his red belt. And he was the only red belt. Now, keep in mind, red belt was right before black belt in Tung Sudo. Now, Somewhere along the line, he missed the memo not to wear that belt, and uh, everyone kind of froze and kind of looked at him, and I, and I grabbed him to the side. I pulled him. I said, take off your belt, and so uh, yeah, that, that was my one of my Chuck stories. Not, not the brightest moment of all, but um, learned a lot, you know, drove back and learned a ton you know, by training with some of the other guys from other organizations and uh, learned some you know, techniques and concepts that were just amazing. So the other takeaway from the story is I think he or she who travels the furthest gets the most because uh, I talk about that seminar a lot. It was a challenge to get there and to get back, you know, in terms of, you know, logistics. And uh, I still hold on to a lot of the material that I got from that seminar. So if you ever have a chance to travel, man, travel. And the further away, the better, because you're probably going to value it a lot more. Yeah, especially if you get the opportunity to, you know, train with some of the living legends in the martial arts. You know, you just can't put a price on how much that's worth. Oh, man, it was huge. It was huge. And, you know, we always look back and we tell those stories. And, you know, there was a lot of fun had, but then there was a lot of training had. And I think, you know, partying and all that is great. Uh, but you better, you got to make sure you put your training time in, you know, because you, you go there for the event, not for the other stuff. So, um, you know, for the, for, the, for the younger folk listening, you know, make sure not to make that same mistake I did. I don't do that anymore. I, I, I've, I've, I'm past that now, I'd like to think. You have continuously improved to now you can get on a plane. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, my, more like my wife dragged me on the plane. So, you know, it's a, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But um, and also, you know, with two young ones, it's just a, not a good idea to drive. But uh, second Chuck story I got to tell you is um, 
this is when he came in 2013. Uh, him and Vic and the whole crew came down. Howard was there. Carl was there. They came to Silverstone, Maryland. You know, so we did a big. Uh, it was the day before our Kaizen tournament. It was on a Saturday. Uh, they did this event, and I remember, you know, I, I had. I mean, I thought I was in another world. I mean, I'm not even kidding you, Steve. I I had four tenth degree black belts in my car, so I went to go pick them up. And I think I picked them up from the hotel or something like that. They were staying in in in, in DC at the time, uh, you know, at their hotel. Picked them up, man. I was just listening to them, picking their brain, asking questions. You know, I was happy to drive with them and drive them, you know, to the to the seminar. And so they get there, and you know, I'm talking to Chuck and all that. And you know, we were having this really good conversation. You know, it was at uh, Silver Spring International in the gym. And uh, he like abruptly stopped talking to me. And you know, that's and you know, Chuck, that's not like him. He's like, V, I gotta go. I'm like, where are you going? I was like, we're talking. You know, now keep in mind that everyone was kind of getting ready on the floor and getting ready to start their training. He looked at me like, I mean, not like I'm stupid look, but like looked at me like, you know, if someone has a really, really serious conversation look, and it kind of matches exactly what you just said. He looked at me and I never forgot what he said. He said, V, he's like, there's a lot of beginners here today, and we're going to go over the basics for about 20 or 30 minutes. And this is the most important part. And we need the most qualified person, most qualified person to teach it. And that's me. And he walked away. And he taught for 30 minutes. I think he was like 82 or 83 at the time. And he just went. He was moving for like 20 or 30 minutes. And it blew me away. And I'm thinking to myself, myself, and how many, how many instructors in schools do you know where people delegate those basics and the warm-ups and the drills? I got to tell you, Steve, I'm after that, I stopped doing that. I used to do. I used to do the same thing. I used to delegate all the basics and everything to someone else. But you know, it's the whole concept of degradation. You know, if you take a, a master copy of something, right, and you take a photocopy of that, well, it's going to be good, but it's never going to be as good as the master copy, right? And then the problem is, if you take a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, pretty soon, three, four, five, six generations down, it looks nothing like that master copy. And I think that's what Chuck was trying to teach me is that you got to make sure that if you're trying to create the very best and you are the main person or the main teacher or one of the main teachers, you know, as much as we want to give teaching hours and give teaching credit to students. And, you know, we, I know we do that in Kaizen. There's times for that, but there's times when the, the person with the highest rank needs to be teaching. And that's kind of what I took away from Chuck. And it really, really stuck with me that day. It, it, um, you know, to see him moving and, you know, he didn't have to do that. He could have easily, there was other 10th degrees there. There was other people way more, you know, who, when I say way more, more than qualified to teach, but there's no question he was the qualified person to teach it. I've had the privilege of actually being on the mat, assisting him during, you know, teaching basic classes to, you know, color belts and lower color belt ranks and stuff like that. It's always a pleasure to get out mm -hmm. there. And uh, just watch him in his element with that too. It's just—it's so much fun. Yeah, he—he—he's amazing. I've—I've I've took some of that same advice myself, where you know, to try to give other people the teaching hours and stuff like that. I'll let them run it, but I'm still going to be out there moving around in and out of each person and making small corrections, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one thing while they're running the group piece. And that way, I can kind of fly by and hit almost every student in the class that way. No, that's exactly right. And I remember when I—you know—you made me remember this when I when I made that switch, you know, from. I used to, you know, early on, I would teach everything. Then I got to a point where, you know, I was trying to help people become assistant instructors so they could teach and do all that. 
when I, and even to this day, you know, I know some people maybe take it the wrong way because sometimes they think I'm always watching or doing like that. But, you know, we quickly have a talk if I notice that or sense that. And I say, look, it's not because you're not doing it right. I don't want you to do it 98% right. I want you to do it 100% right because we want to make sure we're duplicating the right thing. You know, so one of the things in our curriculum is that we have, we have teaching hours built into our promotions at Kaizen. And you have to do a certain amount. Of, I think it's like 95 teaching hours prior to getting to Black Belt. I will not promote you to Black Belt unless you've done 95 teaching hours. And we recently revised that where 80% of those teaching hours has to be directly with me. Um, and we say that not, it's not an ego thing. It's not anything other than you, you, we really want to make sure we're producing some of the, you know, the best students. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. You know, Pre-COVID, we would do all of our belt testing in person. And, you know, I've been a member in Black Belt with the IKCA for years now. And I, I got to tell you, the IKCA has had virtual training and distance learning figured out way before distance learning was cool. You know, pre-COVID. 1990, you know, baby. Already had it. Yeah, absolutely. They had it figured out. And I know in the early days, it wasn't always, you know, the cool thing. It's the best thing. Because when you're training in person, you know, and Chuck's explained this, Vic's explained this to me, you know, over the years is that. You know, you might remember everything, but I don't know about you. I think back to like when I was a kid, I can't remember half the things I was told, you know, when I was training as a young martial artist. But if it's on video, you know, and if there's something in writing, you can remember it. Uh, so, you know, what, one of the things we did was prior to COVID, um, you know, we would do a lot of in-person training, in-person testing, in-person training, of course, but in-person testing. Um, we're doing all of our testing now online and everyone is training meaning all the people who are belt testing are doing it one-on-one -on -one with me and, you know, the instructors, I got to say, first of all, hats off to all of the Kaizen instructors because they're fantastic. They're amazing. They're killing it, working hard. No matter how hard an instructor works, you know, sometimes there's going to be something that the students miss. So we kind of have those two layers of, of, you know, check and balance, you know, where we're testing students by video. And I got to tell you, it's um, post COVID whenever that happens, I guarantee you we're still going to stick to video for testing. You know, we'll, we'll still probably do ceremonies in person and things like that because we're all local. You know, we're not international uh, in that respect, but we're all within the same local vicinity. So we'll still do in-person ceremonies and things. But I got to tell you, the, the video testing and the video testing process that's in place with the IKCA, it's just um, I was highly against it when I first started because I'm like, what is this, right? You know, how does this work? After doing it and like becoming a, you know, going through that process, it is very difficult. You think it's easy. It is challenging, you know, and I know we've talked about this and we've heard stories about what makes it hard, but uh, if you haven't done it, do it. It's, it's, it's legit. It's the right way to do it. I, I can share a complete example from that, from my story yesterday. Uh, I took a brown belt yeah. test in jujitsu yesterday and I'm trying to figure out right now whether or not I've got a separated shoulder or I've got a shoulder that's needing surgery or whatever. And it really was bothering me yesterday taking that test. And we videoed the entire test, uh, a really cool thing. My teacher was able to sit in from Japan and watch the test, which is awesome. And nice. I was very down on myself at the end of that test because I felt like my shoulder prevented me from doing so much of what I wanted to do and so much of how I normally would execute material. And it was just in so much pain that it really bothered me. And I was really down mm -hmm. on myself and really thinking I, you know, I, I passed the test, but I didn't feel like, you know, last night when I went home and I was sitting in the shower, you know, uh, trying to thaw out my shoulder, basically, I really didn't feel like I had put in the best of what I could do yesterday, and it was really bugging me. Mm -hmm. I went back and watched that video this morning, and it was way better than I thought it was. 
Hmm. Like I sat there watching that thing and going, okay, cool. Yes. I made some mistakes here. Yes. I need some, I need to tighten this up here. Yes. I need to work on that. About 95% of the stuff that I was getting on myself for was legitimately because I had to modify things for my shoulder, which I don't, you know, don't normally have to do. Uh, But there Hmm. was a couple of things that I absolutely need to tighten up and fix. And, but by and large watching it back, it was, it was really cool to see that the work that I had done paid off in how much I got right. I mean, you're talking probably 95, 98% correct, you know, three to 5% things that are, you know, incorrect. And I was thinking it was more like 50, 50 when I was going home last night. I've also seen the reverse and, and of that where, it. you know, you, you thought you killed a test and you go and watch it and you go, what are they doing? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you probably couldn't have done that if you didn't have video, right? I would probably still be kicking myself right now for it because I felt like, you know, I didn't do what I usually would do and didn't, you know, able to do what I should have done. And instead, I feel a lot better about it. And I feel like, okay, cool. I'm going to go figure out what's going on with my shoulder and then we can keep moving forward. So, uh, you know, if it's okay with you, you know, I got to, I got to tell you a quick story about certificates and videos, right? So, um, you reminded me like, uh, you know, I was, um, you know, I, I, you know, just like I'm sure like anyone who's listening to this, if you're a martial artist, you know, hopefully you proudly display and hang your certificates on the wall in your home office or, you know, uh, wherever it is that you put them. And, you know, every now and then I, I look at these certificates. I look back at my Tung Sudo certificate. I look at my Kempo certificates and, and uh, you know, I, I look back at them fondly with, with love and enjoyment and all these things. And, you know, sometimes the further I move away from that testing date, the more grandiose in my mind, you know, things were. And uh, so I dusted off, you know, prior to, to sending in the, my, my latest video test, um, you know, I dusted off my test from three years ago. And, you know, I was expecting to see this, you know, you know, fireworks and all these great things that were going off during the test. And the only thing, Steve, that I can think about is like, I messed up on that. I messed up on that. I messed up on that. And I could only think about how much improvement has taken place since then. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm actually saying it more so to think of myself, how in the world was I that bad? You know, and I say that because I think that if you're not video testing and if you're not, you know, forget video testing or at least recording yourself at certain increments and then actually going back and watching it. I mean, I don't think there's any way to do it other than that. I mean, back in the day, pre cell phones and video cameras and all these, you know, pre, um, you know, you know how it's easy with a smartphone right now, right? It used to be a big deal in the big production and all this. Um, but, but now it's so much easier to do it. Um, so I think the long story short, in terms of present day, I still use it for my personal training you know, to check on myself. I tell this to my students all the time, which is record yourself, not for testing purposes, but just to see yourself, especially if you don't agree with what your instructor is saying, videotape yourself. I think you actually might start agreeing, you know, because sometimes we don't see and hear ourselves. I'll give you two quick stories. Is, um, I remember one day um, I was a little boy and I was coming home. And I don't know if you remember when answering machines used to be in the house, you know, when you had a <laughs> landline and there was like tape and some of you might have no clue what I'm talking about. So, but you know, we had a phone in the house that was on the... the, the <laughs> it was attached with a cord bed. on the wall. It was attached with a cord and a string, right? And um, there was a tape in there. You were balling if you had a 25-foot extension cord on that, by the way. Oh, man, we were killing it back then. Multi-foot extension cord, right? And um, so I saw this flashing number, which means you have a message, right? And this is pre-cell phones, right? So I hit play, and I listened to it. Steve, I'm not going to tell you... I'm not kidding you. I had smoke coming out of my ears. I was so mad, right? You know, like I listened to the message and this voice on the phone said, hey, mom, it's me. Can you come pick me up and all that? And the only thing I could think about was, 
you know, I left a similar message to that like that earlier, but who is this child talking to my mother? And I actually thought my mom had another kid. I was so, I'm not even kidding you. I was so mad. I'd never heard my voice. And I went to her and she was like, no, that's you. That's what you sound like. It was the first time I heard myself. Not kidding. You know how like nowadays with cell phones, you know, kids can hear and see themselves and all that. I literally, that was the first time I had heard myself Yep. on a recording. And I freaked out because I, I, I forever changed the way I talked after that because I'd never heard myself. Same thing happened. I remember my very first tournament I went to, um, my dad took me down to a tournament in Washington, D.C. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to stun you with my magnificence in terms of my performance here. You know, there was uh, four people competing. I had a uh, flawless score now, right? So there was four people competing. And I, you know, my score was consistent amongst the, I think, three matches that I fought. It was 5-0, 5-0, 5-0. Now, I got the zeros in all of those matches. So I was completely defeated. All of the other kids competing there got trophies. I got this small little, um, you know, it's like a, you ever seen those like ribbons that go around your neck? It's smaller than a quarter, but it's like a bronze kind of like karate yeah, figure. You, were here, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was a you were here medal, right? And um, so, you know, I've, I've won tournaments and trophies and all these lovely things, you know, since then. Um, but, you know, my mom has this little, I call it her shrine to Coach V in her basement. And, you know, she's got trophies and all these nice certificates and all this there. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one because it's the one that I remember. I, I lost. I got my rear end handed to me. And I bring up this story to you because my dad videotaped it, right? And now keep in mind, you know, I walked away with my fourth place consolation trophy and, and all this. Um, probably would have gotten 25th place if there were 25 people competing. Luckily, there was only four people competing. And luckily, there was a mercy roll, which stopped at five because, I mean – this was bad. Like it was five zero five zero within like 30 seconds, you know, of the match starting. So it was, it was bad. And I remember my dad, you know, this is, this shows you when, what camcorders were like back then. He, he pulled out his camcorder, you know, bag, props the camcorder on the TV, starts plugging in 50 billion cores into the back of the TV, <laughs> finally gets this thing to turn on. Right. And I'm watching it and I just look at him. I'm like, okay, when are you going to put me on? And like, he didn't say a word. Now, he was like, smart in the way that he did it. He just let this thing play. And it was multiple, it was like about three matches, right? And I looked at him and I just like, and I had this look of same, same thing. You know, when I told you about, I heard myself on the voice recorder and the answer machine. I just looked at him like, who is this kid? He's horrible. He looked at me. He's like, that's you. I said, you're kidding me. He's like, no, that's you. Look. And cause it was filmed from a little far away. And I was like, sure enough. I was like, I was like, oh my God, that's me. In my head, I was Bruce Lee. And like on video camera, I was someone completely different. So Steve, those were my two first memories of a voice recording, what my voice sounded like, and my first recording of my martial arts. And I got to tell you, I think, you know, the further you go, and this is my advice to everyone listening, but, but my self-advice to myself, if, you, if too much time elapses from your last promotion until now when you haven't gone back to watch recordings of yourself doing it, man, that's dangerous. Because the further we move away from our last inspection of ourselves, the, the you know, I call it big headitis. You know, when I got my black belt at 16, I suffered from a disease and the disease was big headitis. You know, our heads start to get swollen, you know, with our, with ourselves, with how good we think we are. And I got to tell you, that's the, that's the beauty of video testing is that it humbles you, you know, and it puts you back in the right place where, you know, that's why one commonality I've noticed with so many black belts who, who get rank and 
whether it be in IKCA or other systems, have you noticed that so many people are humble and all that? Maybe it's because they don't feel like they're ready. Maybe I think a lot of it has to do with because hopefully they see themselves, you know, and, and I know sometimes when we teach too much, I say this to our instructors all the time. I say, if you didn't wear a belt and you were training and someone from another school came to watch you, would they know what belt you are? I don't know. Right. You know, and I, and I, and I live by that. I make sure that I can pass my black belt test any day, even on my bad days, you know, and that's something that I don't think we should be training for a test. I think just like I gave you that example of the, uh, remember the, the martial arts guy, you know, two weeks out, mm-hmm. you're always two weeks from striking distance. Always, 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 always ready, you know? And, um, I, I think that all of this is just a way of living, you know, it's a way of being, you know, and I think your students watch this kind of stuff. If, if you're, if you're like that, it doesn't mean you got to be the best. I think some, so often we think, you know, we have to be the best if we're going to teach and all that. I think you need to be the best version of you that you could be. And I think that's what I'm about, you know, cause I, I can't control how tall I am or things like that, but I can control how hard I work. You know, I can control the thoughts that I think, you know, those are the things that I focus on. To your point about continuous improvement, that also, you know, looking back at some of those prior videos, you can, while you're getting on yourself or how crappy you may have looked, you know, I think all of us would do that if we look back at when we first started or, you know, in the first few years of training and you thought how good you were at the time, you look back now and you go, oof. But then you have to recognize how far <laughs> have you come since then. And I don't care if that's you start as a white belt, you look back at, you know, your yellow belt test and your orange belt test and your green belt test or, you know, respectfully, whatever system you're using for, you know, marking progression. You look at those first couple of tests and in those first couple of tests, you may see a giant leap, but then you may see a plateau. And then you keep going up for a few more tests, and then you see, oh, wait, I broke through that plateau. And then, wow, man, I've learned a whole lot of material. And then you get 10 years after that, and you go, wow, I sucked back then. But then now, yeah, it's so much right. better. You know, it's it's recognizing when you've made that progress. You're 100% right. I mean, that's the proper way to view it, right? You know, you use it not too much to uh, critique yourself, but if you're, you know, every three years, one year, whatever your time period is to, to videotape yourself, I, I think it's a good way to... Um, to really make sure you keep yourself honest, you know, like you, you, you got to make sure that you're, you're being honest with yourself because it's so easy to head fake yourself, especially if you're wearing a black belt. And, you know, I don't know if you know about sensei stance, you know, we talk about sensei stance in our school um, where you stick both thumbs in your belt and you kind of stand with feet apart, you know, <laughs> you know, the more you, the more you stand in sensei stance, sometimes we suffer from big headitis. And, you know, <laughs> I, I always say to myself, man, if I wasn't wearing my belt, what belt would people think I am? And I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going. Uh, I, I don't, I never heard it called sensei stance, but I, I, I will share the story from the one time <laughs> I did that. <laughs> oh my goodness. I was probably second degree black belt or something like that. I mean, it's like 2003 status maybe. And he's mm-hmm. one of my best buddies. Uh, his name is Rick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was the senpai in the school, so the senior student in that particular school. And he mm-hmm. caught me just chilling on the side, thumb sticking into my belt. And <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me now. I remember flying about six feet backward, landing on my butt with my thumb still sitting in my oh. belt. <laughs> I mean, and he just true, asked right? me the I question mean... and said, how are you going to always be ready with your thumbs tucked away? Yeah, <laughs> that was the last time yeah, I stood so with I, my I, thumb stuck out of my belt. I'll tell you that much. 
<laughs> I try not to keep my thumb stuck in my belt because I know I talk about it a bunch. So I try not to. Every now and then I catch myself doing it and I see others doing it and I just smile, you know, when I see it. And, uh, and uh, hey, Steve, I got to tell you what's uh, something what keeps me going these days is, um, you know, I have two boys. And um, so my wife and I have a four year old. His, uh, his name is Gavin. And um, our youngest child, I, I'm not, I'm not even kidding. I'm going to tell you his name. You're not going to believe it. She, she like actually let me name him this. Uh, our youngest, who's six, uh, six months old, uh, his name is Theo or Theodore, and his middle name is Leonidas. And um, awesome. So I wanted to link, yeah, like you know Leonidas from 300. So, uh, so I wanted to name him that, and I, she wouldn't let me name him as his first name, but uh, so we actually got to name him that as his middle name. Uh, so I bring this up to you because I think that's what kind of keeps me going nowadays is now uh, my my young my oldest who's four, he started training. He's actually training virtually. Um, I actually have video of him doing the master form because uh, he was with me as I was training for my uh, most recent IKCA test. And uh, I'll, I'll have to text it to you when we're you know done here. Um, but he is uh, he's got the sound effects down. But I think we got to stop teaching him more moves and we need to start focusing on stances and things like that. But, <laughs> but man. Um, well, he's four. You know, he's got plenty he's of time, too. Oh, he's hilarious. But, you know, every now and then, you know, in Zoom, there's breakout rooms and things like this. So he looks at me. He's like, Dada, I'm teaching today. And I'm like, yeah, what are you teaching? He's like, I'm teaching the master form. I'm like, okay. I'm like, you're teaching now? He's like, yeah, I'm going to go set up the breakout rooms. And I'm like, so, you know, it's, That's awesome. that brings joy to me. That brings joy. And, you know, I think that um, I- I'm, I'm trying not to make mistakes that I've seen made. You know, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I've seen instructors who try to teach their own kids. Um, I know some have done that successfully, and I know some have not. Um, for me, I've also seen instructors, a uh, couple who come to mind are uh, David, who I talked about earlier, and also Gene, who's Gene Lee. He's one of our, um, he's one of my, he's not one of my black belts, but he's a very, very close friend of mine. He, um, both me and him got our black belts from the same uh, instructor in Tung Sudo. And the thing that David and Gene did well, which in my opinion was just brilliant. Uh, and there was another black at the time, uh, Steve. Um, what they did really well was they, they sent their kids to me. And not, it's not me that they sent it to that was the smart decision. It's that they didn't try, they, they were, they're black belts themselves. So all three of those gentlemen that I just told you about had kids. They could have easily taught them. Uh, but what they did was they sent them to another instructor, just happened to be me, and they coached them on the side. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now. You know, and when my oldest is training, uh, you know, Gavin, hopefully one one day he listens to this. I don't know if he ever will or not, but we'll see. Um, you know, right now he's training on Zoom. He's training with one of our Kaizen instructors who's just amazing with kids. And, um, you know, it's kind of like mommy and me class. And mommy right now trains with him during the class. And um, I bite my tongue. You know, I kind of sit on the sideline and I watch. And, you know, they, you know, it's fun to watch them go through the process. You know, and so often I equate teaching to kind of like fishing. You know, I'm not a master fisherman or anything like this, but, you know, if you see a fish swim by, the worst thing you can do is take your tackle box with all the lures and everything and throw it at the fish. It's not going to catch the fish if you kind of attack it with everything you know and everything you got. You got to throw out one piece and, you know, one lure. I'm not a fishing expert, so I apologize to you fishermen out there who are like laughing at me, you know, but, you know, you, you reel it in, right? And I think that's kind of what I equate teaching kids to is that you got to be careful about, you know, doing an information dump on them. And, you know, I call it having verbal diarrhea. You, know, you just kind of just tell them everything, you know, I think you got to, you know, carefully and methodically share it. So, um, you know, with Gavin, that's kind of the thing that keeps us going is that um, it's, it's brought a whole new life to my martial arts training. I think um, 
I'm not saying I was ever going to stop, but, um, you know, it's juiced me up for the next at least 10 years now to, you know, kind of keep going with him, you know, and kind of help guide him along his journey. And hopefully I can keep my, my lips sealed more than I talk, you know, and just help him guide him, you know, through example. And if he has questions, I'll help him, but, you know, put him in front of the right people and, uh, hopefully he gets there. Hopefully he gets there. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what's going on with me today. And then hopefully, uh, young Leonidas also takes, uh, takes after us, you know, Love my it. wife won't let me send him to the wolves and kill a wolf or anything. Hopefully she'll let me, uh, let him go to martial arts class. So. Well, you said Theodore and the first thing I thought of was Teddy Roosevelt. Then you said Leonidas. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you got a rough the, rider 300. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> oh dude. And you're not even going to guess what his nickname is. We call him uh, T-Rex. So, um, nice. you know, like when we, uh, yeah. So in the house, you know, when Gavin goes to, uh, you know, get his little brother from, from bed when it's time to wake up, we've actually trained him now that we have at least a two to four minute buffer before we have to go in when he starts crying. Cause Gavin goes screaming down the hallway. He's like, T-Rex, <laughs> I'm coming for you. Oh man. So, uh, yeah, hopefully he's got some strong names, you know, Theodore, you know, uh, T-Rex and Leonidas. Hopefully he doesn't get picked on too much as a kid. So that's great. But, um, yeah, so that's what keeps me going nowadays, you know, and, uh, you know, my hands are full. I'm a full-time dad, part-time martial artist, and, you know, it's uh, just life is exciting. You know, we got a kind of a challenging world we're growing up in, but I think martial arts is probably uh, – and I put a plug out there to anyone who's an instructor. Man, martial arts is needed more, more now than ever before, you know, and if you're out of work or your dojo shut down or uh, something like that, don't give up. Don't give up hope. You know, there, when we come back, and we'll come back stronger, I think, than before. And I think the generation who's stuck with it now is going to be a very strong generation of black belt. That was my prediction from earlier. But I think when we do get back to training, and I'm talking full steam, you know, like really in person when, you know, I think about the IKCA, when we get back to seminars in person, when schools can fully reopen, um, it, it's, it's something that's so sorely needed for the camaraderie. Um, definitely for the martial arts, don't get me wrong, but man, just the, just the, you know, the great relationships that you build, the, the, the times with your friends, the, all of that. So, you know, we're, we're all looking forward to it in, in, in the school that I train in and run it. And, and I'll say this is a funny joke, but it's true. We were all debating what we're going to do on the first day back. And, um, you know, I don't know if you, you ever, um, you ever worked with macho martial arts, you know, they have a red man department, which is like the full body suits, you know, like the police attack suits. I'm familiar with them. I've never actually worked directly with them, but I am familiar with them. Yeah. So they have this like attack suit that like, you know, dogs can run and bite your arm and you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't think on our first day back, we're even going to bow in. We're just going to all meet up in the parking lot with full set of gear, red man out <laughs> and just go at it, you know? So it's <laughs> so just full body armor. We'll, you know, double up on the cup. We're two cups, you know, like, you know, just like people wear two masks, we'll wear two cups and just we'll go, you know? So we're all just raring to get back to sparring, but um, you know, at least where we live, I know some States are back. Uh, we have friends in some, some of the southern states, and they're like, what are you talking about? We're already back sparring. Um, we're not. You know, we got one of our IKCA brothers out in Australia. He he, he texted me on, on the other day saying – not texted, but Facebook messaged me. He said, they're already sparring, you know, and uh, we're not. We're in Maryland, and uh, we're not there yet. You know, our, our tiny executive uh, didn't feel that it's safe. I will leave that alone. I will not make any more comments. But, um, you know, hopefully one day we get back to it soon, you know. So that's 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 where we're at. Love it. 
All right, so let's move towards our uh, wrap-up segments here. My first part sure. for this is the plug your stuff moment. So anything you would like to offer as far as people want to get a hold of you, how they get a hold of you, we did, you know, whatever contact information you want to provide, this is the time to do that. So I'll turn that over to you for that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The easiest way to catch us, guys, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Twitter, everything, you know, all the ma- you know, major social media platforms. Easiest way to reach us is just go to KaizenKarateUSA.com. It's K-A-I-Z-E-N. K-A-R-A-T-E, USA.com. Just click contact us. You can reach us through there. Um, Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, those are really easy. Just uh, Or if you just Google us, you know, there's this great website. It's called Google. Uh, just type in <laughs> Kaisen Karate. Um, you know, I said that the other day in class. The students got very upset with me that I said that. So, But um, you, you type in uh, Kaizen Karate, K-A-I-Z-E-N, Karate, uh, Silver Spring, or just Kaizen Karate. We're the only one in Silver Spring, Maryland by Kaizen Karate. That's us. And uh, all those messages come to me, and I'd love to hear from you. Beautiful. So, and my last segment here is the, what I call, message to the world segment, which is knowing that this is now going to be going up on the internet here in a couple weeks, and unless Mm -hmm. something takes down the internet, which good luck, right? I mean, you'd have to have a worldwide, (laughs) you know, calamity for that to take down the whole internet. Once it goes up there, it's going to be online forever. So, knowing Mm -hmm. that, this show could theoretically be heard, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now. What message do you want them to hear from Coach V? Well, I think I have a couple. Um, thank you for asking. I, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. This has just been a, a delight. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be on here. And um, I think the, the first message that I have is that, you know, last I checked, there's no law. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong now, and I'm curious. I mean, there's no law that says martial arts has to be passed on. Uh, there's no law that says, you know, we have to promote black belts. You know, there's no law that says martial arts will continue indefinitely. I mean, does that sound sound about right? I don't see a flaw in it. Yeah, I mean, and so I guess my message to the world is just, you know, if you're one of those instructors who's maybe been sidelined due to COVID, you know, hopefully not for health, but just because of, you know, your studio or whatever was, you know, a training center or dojo or facility, whatever you want to call it, was shut down. Uh, we need you. We need you. You know, I think the uh, I think the martial arts as a whole uh, was on a huge roll prior to COVID, and I think it's taken a very big backseat uh, to some of the other issues of the day. And I think that you know when we look back on this, I think that what's probably going to be this is my personal belief here. You know, is uh, I think the financial you know crisis is probably going to be a lot bigger than the the health crisis. I mean, the health crisis is horrible. There's been a ton of lost lives, and I'm, my heart goes out to anybody who's been impacted. At the same time. You know, we have a horrible financial crisis and businesses have been shut down. I know we've been heavily impacted and all that. But I said all the martial artists around the world, you know, uh, it's it's something where if, you know, it's kind of like Chuck, like we were talking about before. The most senior people should be in front of the most junior people as much as possible. And I think that's how you ensure that the martial arts continues. I talk about this all the time. I, I, I don't view myself as a Kaizen Karate instructor. That's one of my roles. I view myself as an ambassador for the martial arts. You know, I I try to sing the praises of martial arts wherever I go. And, you know, maybe this might be sitting on a soapbox preaching here for a second, but I think it's important to do so. I think the days of martial artists maybe, yeah, I mean, the days of martial artists talking bad about each other or saying that school is no good or this is no good, that has to end. I think if anything, I think we need to look for the good in each other. You know, we talk about it to our students, but maybe we don't do it when it comes to another school. You know, I think the politics, all that stuff, we all got to set it aside. And it's kind of like, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say it. 
you know, and um, I think, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, I hope that, you know, there's even stronger generations than what we have in place right now. I think that's one of my concerns, you know, is that, you know, someone who has young kids, I hope that they have some of the, the same, if not better experiences that you and I have had growing up with training, with teachers, with experiences. And, um, you know, hopefully the instructors continue to teach. Hopefully the instructors who have the knowledge and the wisdom continue to pass that on. I think with the internet, it's going to make it possible, you know, through videos and things like that. But that's not all we need. We also need in person, you know. Um, so that's one of my messages to the world. I think the other message to the world is just, guys, you know, there's a lot that we can't control. But um, I think if we focus on controlling ourselves, everything will sort itself out. You know, there's the economy and then there's your economy. You know, you need to focus on your house, get your house in order, get your economy in order. And I know you and I have very similar beliefs in many ways, and I'll leave that alone. But, you know, I, I think one of my one of my focuses every day is what can I do to get better today? What can I do to make today better than yesterday? And it's really not a hard formula. It, 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 it's a simple formula. It's just hard to do because there's so many days we don't feel like doing it, right? You know, but how? But I think if we can do that, I think we can get into a better place. Love it. V, it was my honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for carving out so much of your time for us. That was a great, a great chat, man. Great chat. Love it. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, this is just wonderful. I think the work you're doing is, is amazing. I think uh, the podcast is fantastic. And, uh, you know, uh, if anyone is able to share, just please hit that share button. This is good stuff here. You know, the, all the work that you're doing is just is just really, really great for the martial arts as a whole. Oh, it's, you know, I can't do it without our guest showing up on the show. Otherwise, I'd be ta- just talking myself, and I don't think we'd have the audience we have now. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> you know, somehow just saying my stuff every week after week, I don't think it would go over as well. But uh, we've had wonderful right. guests on this show, and I count you as one of them. I'm honored to call you a friend and a brother in the arts. Let's keep sharing away, man. It's, the feeling is, feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. All right, another great Season 2 episode is in the books, folks. Season 1 is still available at more major podcast platforms than ever, with new platforms added all the time. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on whichever platform of choice you're listening on. We greatly appreciate the feedback. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Audible, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Alexa, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, Bullhorn, the podcast app, and of course our host Podbean as well, and about 15 more that I don't have time to go through. Find us at www.artistofmotion.com. Facebook page is Artist of Motion. Twitter and Facebook at AOM Podcast. Email to pod at artistofmotion.com if you're interested in appearing or want to recommend us a guest. We're open to anyone of any style or lineage. That's all for this week. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion Podcast. <laughs>